I want to focus this evening on verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And uh, if, you, if you need a, a single verse that encapsulates the hope of Christmas, the anticipation of Advent, then that is it right there. Isaiah 9 verse 2. And it might be for you a familiar line, particularly if you've attended carol services. We'll probably read it again this time next week in our own carol service. Um, but I want to try and dig in this evening into this, this idea of, of, of darkness and light. What is darkness for Isaiah? What is light? Because when we understand that, we understand the rest of the passage and therefore we start to get a, a deeper grasp on, on Christmas that goes deeper, let's face it, than a lot of the superficial uh, understanding that we, all, we often do have. Um, and churches probably are part of that too. Um, let's, let's, let's try and take things a little deeper um, this evening. So first of all, we're going to think about darkness. What exactly is darkness? And therefore, when we get that, we understand how good light is, right? And the amazing thing about light. So first of all, what is, what is darkness? Obviously, we've come in here at Isaiah chapter 9, and we have missed, therefore, Isaiah chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. And um, so in order for us to understand darkness in this context, we have to have a rough uh, idea of what has happened before in the prophecy that we've just read and where does this language of darkness and light come from and what does it mean? Isaiah, uh, for those of you who have never heard of him or never read this, this particular part of the Bible, Isaiah is uh, a prophet of Judah, uh, the southern kingdom. Uh, he, re he resided in Jerusalem, which was their capital city. And um, he spoke prophecies from God to the people in incredibly uncertain times. Incredibly uncertain times. In fact, much like our own, we could say, in fact, probably even more so, uh, their society was very, very anxious. Uh, big things were about to happen. Uh, they weren't sure which way it was going to go. Was the world going to end? Were they going to collapse as a society? Were they going to be overcome by factors outside of their control? And so uh, through the prophet Judah, uh, um, Israel, uh, Isaiah, God spoke words of comfort but also words of accusation. The king at the time was a king called Ahaz. He generally was a bad guy. He didn't follow God. His heart wasn't given over to the God of Israel. And what we see in, in the first few chapters of Isaiah is that Ahaz, this king, the king of Judah, uh, was under great pressure. He was a little, little king with a little kingdom, under great pressure from this big empire called Assyria. More focused on that. Let's, let's take it another step. Um, what we read in uh, the earlier parts of, of the last few chapters is that another little country, Syria and, and, and Israel, have, have come together to form an alliance and they are pressing down on Judah and Ahaz and forcing them to join together so they can all take on the mighty Assyria. So that's kind of what's going on at the moment. You can read more about that in 2 Kings 16 if you want. But, as I said, God sent his prophet Isaiah to comfort, to encourage, to challenge uh, the people. Chapter or so before, God says, for example, uh, in chapter 7, verse 4, uh, Be careful, Ahaz, do not fear, do not let your heart faint because of these two smoldering stumps and firebrands, these two leaders. Uh, he says later on, Thus says the Lord, you, it shall, this, 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 
overthrowing that's shadowing over you, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. So, so God is trying to encourage Ahaz to stay firm, to trust God, uh, for the people to fall in behind, trust God, stay firm, even though it is uncertain. And so this language of darkness describes this sort of highly uncertain, highly volatile situation that we find ourselves in when we come to Isaiah chapter 9. But we need to take it a little further still. This gives us a rough idea of what Isaiah means when he comes to darkness. But there's deeper problems. There's further things that we need to look at. In Isaiah 1 through 5, the first five chapters of the book, which gives us the sort of the background of the background, the darkness that Isaiah has seen is actually a lot worse than just these political problems I've mentioned. Because we see that the darkness is not only out there in the world, but the darkness is within each person. And Isaiah, like, a, like a, a lawyer, if you like, bringing a case against the people of, of Judah, lists out unfaithfulness to God, idolatry against God, empty worship against God, therefore injustice towards the weak and the vulnerable and the oppressed. See, this darkness isn't just a social, political problem. It is an internal and spiritual problem. Ultimately, because the heart of the king and the heart of the people were going away from God, the society, the fabric of the society was becoming stretched and strained and threatening to tear itself apart. And the Bible uses the word darkness to describe this situation. The people, it seems, were trying to be spiritual on their own terms. They were trying to live a life aside from God and as a result there was no light in their experience they were wandering they were distressed they were hungry spiritually hungry they were angry at God and angry at their leader in fact in chapter 8 verse 22 as the result of all of this it says that they will look to the earth but behold distress and darkness and the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness the kind of darkness that you can almost reach out and grasp. That is where this group of people who should know better, that's where they're going. They are wandering away from God. And one day they will experience complete life outside of God. Some people say that in our society at the moment, we are, we are seeing an epidemic of, of suicide where so many people these days cannot see beyond the darkness of their own present situation and see suicide as the only way out. One friend of mine who is a, a minister, a, a church minister, um, was, was counselling a man who had, uh, by his own admission, an incredibly corrupt life, incredibly morally corrupt in the things that he had done in the past. And he was searching for light. He was searching for help for someone to come along and bring light into his darkness. But my friend, the, the minister, um, was concerned because this man was not only uh, just devastated by the extent and the depth of his moral corruption, but that he was actively considering suicide as the only option. What else can someone in my position do, argued this individual. We see it all over the news, on social media. We see it in the medical sphere as well. Depression, suicide, self-harm. 
We hear of it in the churches. We hear of it in other walks of life. Perhaps you have experienced some of these things yourselves or you know of others who have. We can all see it. This is one, perhaps one symptom of the deep darkness that our own society is in. This thick darkness. Many people who don't like to think of these things just try and go through life with their head down, ignoring the reality. But when you really think about it, we are in darkness. And there's no real surprise to that. And perhaps more recently, within the last generation or so, various philosophers have tried to contemplate systems of thought, systems of understanding, without reference to God or the divine or anything like that. They have come up with various secular theories about what it is to, to, to be a person, what it is to have meaning, and so, so forth. But interestingly, and we'll see in a few moments, they come to very, very similar conclusions when they spend entire lives thinking of life without God. For example, there's one famous philosopher, Frenchman, by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre. And following lots and lots of philosophical debate and, and thought, he eventually came to the conclusion, this is a quote, that man, means humankind, is a useless passion. At the end of the day, when all is said and done, according to this philosopher, life without God, human beings are a useless passion. Just a bunch of emotion that comes to nothing. And that's it. Similarly, Bertrand Russell, who also was an atheist and a writer and a philosopher, he said this, at the end of the day, quote, all human labor and genius is destined to distinction in the vast death of the solar system, resulting in unyielding despair of the soul. Can you hear what he's saying? At the end of the day, again, when all is said and done, no matter how much progress we have made as human beings, how many scientific breakthroughs we've made, how much cultural development we have seen, how much art we have developed. He said, at the end of the day, none of it really matters because one day we're all going to get engulfed by this big red sun and that'll be it. There'll be no more memory, there'll be no more existence, gone. So argues Bertrand Russell, what is the point of doing anything right now? Because ultimately, that's where we're heading. And he says it results in the unyielding despair of the soul. It's pretty depressing reading, really, when you think about it. But these are two individuals, two great minds, who are contemplating life without God, and they make a similar conclusion. Life is pointless. And they are also consistent with the Bible. Life without God is pointless. It is darkness. It is meaningless. See, many of us, when we are faced with darkness, we may not call it that, but when we are faced with it in one form or another, we will attempt to fix it in any number of ways. Ahaz, the king of Judah, for example, who denied God's word, he looked to political systems to try and find the salvation, the light, that is, that he thought he needed. And so he made an allegiance um, that he shouldn't have made. He went to other countries. He, he formed a pact. And I just pushed him further and further away from God. But that's what he did. He looked to politics in order to provide the answers for the darkness that he was seeing. And it turned out he was bitterly wrong. 
The people of Judah looked in other directions. They looked for religion. They looked to religion. If we can just start getting the sacrifices back up and running, if we can start you know, going through the, pro- the, the process of, of worship and, 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 and doing all that stuff that just keeps God happy, then in that we will find our salvation. These empty religious works. And again, as we see, as the scriptures go on, they were bitterly wrong. And likewise, people all the time, when faced with darkness, try to find means to find light somehow or other. Whether it's adopting a political opinion, here is salvation, we say to ourselves. Or if it's adopting a good cause, again, we think salvation lies in this cause or that cause. Whether we think it lies in education or training or welfare, multiple ways that we look to try and fix the darkness that we think, to try and find answers to the problems that we have. For others of us, it's adopting religious activity, moral reform, just good living. That's how we're going to find a sense of lightness. But as we have seen, it's the testimony of the Bible, it's the testimony of modern secular philosophers, and let's be honest, in our own experience too, that these things that we look to for light do not ultimately provide what we hope they will. Pushed to its logical conclusions, therefore, life without reference to God as he reveals himself is darkness. I wonder if you can relate to that sense of darkness that we're starting to understand in Isaiah. Maybe you have a hunger that cannot be satisfied. Maybe you have attempted moral living. You have looked to your career success. You have looked to your material prosperity to be satisfied. And yet you have not found the answers you're looking for. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the deep darkness, the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. After darkness comes light. And this is where the hope of Christmas starts to dawn. Isaiah, you see, wrote about a future event, a future salvation, a future coming of the light, but he used past tenses to describe a salvation that he was so certain was going to happen. A light is coming, he thought. There's great hope for the future. It's interesting when the gospel writer Matthew, St. Matthew, reflecting and recording the life and words of Jesus of Nazareth, when he used these verses from Isaiah chapter 9 and he applied them to Jesus. That moment that Isaiah spoke about, this great light, those who dwelt in a land of darkness, on them has light shined. According to Matthew... These words started to come true when Jesus appeared in Galilee and started to preach the gospel. And where does Jesus begin to preach the gospel? It says in Matthew 4, verses 12 to 17, he started in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in Galilee of the nations. Exactly where Isaiah 9, verse 1 points to. The gospel writer John agreed. John said, pointing to Jesus, in him was life, 
And that life was the light of men. Jesus himself, later on in John's Gospel, went on to say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. According to the Gospel, Jesus has come. Jesus is the light. He is the one who will push back the darkness. He is the one who will dissolve the thick darkness. He is the one that Isaiah foresaw in chapter 9, verse 2. It's interesting, isn't it, that Matthew, when he records at the end of Jesus' life, the moment of his death on the cross, Matthew reminds us of what happened. He writes this, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. So from noon to 3 p.m., instead of light, there was darkness. What was happening there on the cross? What was going on? Darkness, of course, as we've been learning, was a sign. It was a metaphor for two other things. It was a metaphor upon Jesus for human sin, and it was a metaphor for God's response to that sin, his just anger and judgment against sin. Sin and the wrath of God were coming down on Jesus when he hung there on the cross. Why is that? Well, as the Apostle Paul writes, for our sake, he became sin that we might be forgiven. The darkness of sin, rebellion, distress, injustice, idolatry, all of that darkness came upon Jesus. And God responded justly in judgment and wrath. As we sing in another song, the father turned his face away. That was what was going on when darkness fell on Jesus, when he was dying on the cross. And this darkness that he experienced was thicker than ever. It was deeper than anyone had ever experienced. It was heavier than anything that has been felt before or since. Because on Jesus, for those three hours, there was cosmic darkness. For every sin on him was laid. That's what we sing. Jesus, in the gospel, took the darkness so that we could step into the light. Light shined on us because darkness fell upon Jesus. For those who dwell in darkness have seen a great light. In the gospel, we know that no human effort, there's nothing that we can do that will bring light upon ourselves. Only through the death of Jesus and through that infinite darkness that he went through can we know light. So if we understand that, there are three implications that we need to take home with us this evening. The first one is this. There is no darkness too thick. Second, no life too insignificant. And third, there is no future too hopeless. When we understand that Jesus is the light prophesied by Isaiah, number one, there is no darkness too thick. Can anyone, do you think, emerge from such deep darkness and thick gloom. As I mentioned, these two regions of Zebulun and Naphtali in the very northern aspects of Israel, they were right on the frontier with these hostile pagan neighbours. And yet, they were the first ones to experience the mighty power of Assyria bearing down on them, crushing them and engulfing them into complete darkness. They were obliterated. 
And yet the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. It is just typical of God. It's typical of the grace of Jesus that the location when that light first began to shine in the land was in Galilee, was in Zebulun and Naphtali. Many hundreds of years later when Jesus started his ministry, it was the exact same place. What we're hearing here and what the Bible is saying to us is that darkness and gloom is not final. What we're hearing is that God delights to show his mercy and his grace. Darkness does not need to be the end. There's no matter how black and thick the darkness happens to be, it is not the end. Because Jesus Christ took the deepest darkness, we can receive the light of life. There is no darkness too thick. There is no past too far gone. There is no sin too deep to be forgiven. There is no situation that cannot be changed around by God and the life that comes from Jesus. And so let's not believe the lie when we see the gospel. Let's not believe the lie that we are too far gone. Whether that applies to you or a family member or a friend, there is no darkness too thick. Second implication, there is no life too insignificant. The Bible develops this theme of light into the New Testament. Because the idea is when someone stands in the light of God through Jesus, when someone receives that light, they will be changed. They will look at Jesus Christ and be transformed. And, and just as Moses looked at God and became glowing and radiant in God's glory, and, and, and so much so that he had to put a veil over his face because he was, he was freaking out Israel way too much, so too for us, when we look at Jesus Christ, when we see what he did, when we see what he did in the gospel for us, then we will start to reflect his light into the surrounding darkness. Jesus told his own disciples in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We've been thinking a few moments ago about living in a world that is dark and a world that is desperate, desperately in need <clears throat> for the answer answers to the gloom of the anguish that they experience. There is a, a deep longing for this hunger to be satisfied. And so when we see what Christ has done for us, then the watching world will be drawn to that light. And it happens when we interact with the darkness, when we go out and we, we live lives among people who walk in darkness. That means that no life is too insignificant. That means that when we have interactions with other people in the workplace, whether they're colleagues, when we go home to our family, uh, among whom there are not believers in Jesus, uh, when we take our, our faith to the places where we frequent day to day, week to week, suddenly everything that we do is instilled with a great significance. There is no life too insignificant. When we do good works, Jesus said, the light shines. That could take any number of forms, whether it is uh, delivering leaflets, sharing the gospel, holding a carol service, talking about Jesus over a cup of coffee. But it's not necessarily additional activities. It's daily activities that we do. Anything that we can do with the light of Christ shining through us will bring glory to Jesus. Therefore, there is no life too insignificant. Third and final um, implication. There is no future too hopeless. When we understand Jesus, when we understand the light that is coming to us through him, there is no future that is too hopeless. 
We saw, saw starting to see how Jesus is the, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. But it's not the end. The prophecy is still not exhausted yet because we still live in darkness. We still live as, as, as carriers of light in the darkness and the darkness out there is still thick. There is still distress. There is still anxiety. There's still depression. But this is not it. There is no future too hopeless. The people who have seen a great light, on them has light shined. You see, just as Isaiah, a few, a few uh, chapters earlier, saw this terrifying vision of the glory of God at the start of his, his ministry, so did the Apostle John. He saw a terrifying, stunning glimpse of the glory of God at the end of his life. When Isaiah saw a vision of the glory of God, his response was to say, woe is me, I'm dead, I've seen God. But John's response, when he saw a vision of the glory of God, said, come Lord Jesus. Why, why is there a difference? Why does one say, call down upon them, themselves death because I've seen God? Why does the other one say, come Lord Jesus because I've seen God? And the answer is this. The difference between the two is because John saw how it all ends. Isaiah never got that glimpse. In contrast to our experience of light mixed with darkness, John saw this time soon to come, according to him, when this darkness of the world would be entirely banished, when there would be nothing but light. Darkness is gone. Hunger, deep existential hunger, is completely satisfied. Distress is but a distant memory. Gloom is replaced with joy upon joy. John says this, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God and the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Listen, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb, which is Jesus. This is the ultimate future for those who stand in the light of Christ by faith. No darkness too thick, no life too insignificant, no future too hopeless. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.